0: So I think uh, Europe is now in the strange position where it would either need a big step forward towards much more fiscal integration towards a truly European welfare state in order to make the euro work, but there's no political support for that in much of Europe, or it would need to abolish the euro, but nobody knows how to do that without economic chaos.
1: 28 countries, 400 million voters, the world's second-largest electorate will go to the polls this week. They're deciding on who will represent them at the European Parliament for the next five years to come.
2: Welcome to Opinion Has It, I'm Elmira bey Since the last EU Parliament elections in 2014, Europe has grappled with financial crises, terrorist attacks, refugees escaping war and economic instability, and Brexit.
1: Well, each member state has allocated a number of members of the European Parliament, or MEPs, based on the size of its population. So, the more people live in a country, the more MEPs that that country actually gets.
2: Far-right parties hold power in Hungary, Poland and Italy, and have made significant gains in Germany, Spain and Scandinavia.
1: Once elected, these 751 MEPs can opt to join groups of a similar political background within the actual parliament itself. Now, these alliances must be made up of at least 25 MEPs, coming from seven different member states. There are currently seven political groups to consider. The biggest are the Socialists and the Centre-Right European People's Party. And while the dividing lines of these parties may remain the same, the linguistic barriers to consider are significant. For instance, legislation has to be put forward and translated into no fewer than 24 different languages. On hand for this, an army of 1,000 interpreters.
2: Joining me today to discuss this is Yasha Monk. Hello.
0: Hi, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Good, great to
2: see you. Nice to see you. Yasha is an associate professor at the Paul H. Nietzsche School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University. He is also the author of the book, The People Versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom Is in Danger, and How to Save It. He joins me from his office in Washington. Let's start just in generally. What's at stake for the EU parliamentary elections? So the stakes are twofold.
0: The first is that the European Parliament has increased in importance over the past decades. Um, and for many of the basic things the European Union needs in order to work, it now requires the assent of the European Parliament, which was not as true until relatively recently. And so the rise of a set of uh, populists, mainly on the far right, but to some extent also on the far left, um, could make it incredibly hard to find majorities um, for particular candidates, for the president of the European Commission, for example, uh, but even to just pass budgets and do other things that the European Union needs for its regular functioning. So this could, if far-right populist parties um, carry off a, a huge victory, Um, become a real threat to the daily functioning of the European Union. I think the second set of stakes, however, is in some ways more important. And that is just as a barometer of populism's rise from the fringes of European uh, uh, politics to its center, uh, in some ways to its beating heart. Um, So in my opinion, the European Parliament elections are not the most important elections. Great thing to say at the beginning of a podcast about the European Parliament elections Uh, But they're not the most important elections we're facing in Europe this year. The most important ones are probably uh, in Poland, where the upcoming election will really decide whether a government intent on destroying the basic democratic institutions of a country is going to get re-elected. But the European Parliament elections are a great test case to see how the ruling Law and Justice Party does compared to the pro-European coalition that's formed in its response. And this is true in many national contexts, not just in Poland. But this election is uh, a very important indicator of whether this rise and rise of the injurious populist parties with intent on destroying democratic institutions is persisting or not.
2: So voter turnout is roughly 42 percent. What accounts for voters relative indifference to the EU parliament? And will this time, will it be different?
0: So the explanation is quite straightforward which is that uh, people don't really understand what the European Parliament does Uh, the European Parliament virtually never turns up in the main news shows of most EU member states Um, really frontline politicians tend to sit in the national parliaments rather than the European Parliament with some notable exceptions Um, and so uh, the candidates who are presenting themselves are not particularly well known. The work they do is not particularly salient to voters. Um, uh, not that much seems to hinge on it in most years. Um, so, historically, voters have often decided to stay home or used it as a way to send a signal within the national political system to say, I don't like the government, I'm going to vote for the opposition, or I don't like all of the political establishment. I'm going to vote for somebody pretty far out, particularly because the stakes seem to be lower at the European level than they would be in a national election. Um, There's been a lot more media attention to European parliament elections this year than there have been in past cycles. Um, There is a real sense among uh, those voters who like the populace that they have a chance to make a real impact and among the people who are scared of them Uh, that they need to turn out to stop them. So uh, there's some reason to think the turnout will be higher this year, Um, uh, but that remains to be seen. I don't think it's going to be much higher than in past years. It may end up being a little higher.
2: So the Europeans often blame the EU for domestic problems, and they view that the bloc suffers from a quote unquote democratic deficit. And yet, when you take a look at polls, And there's a new Pew Research Center report that says that roughly 62% of Europeans have a favorable view of the European Union. Are we mistaking the views of member states' political leaders for those of voters, or is voter sentiment towards the EU more nuanced?
0: Um, Voter sentiment towards the EU is ambiguous. Um, On the one hand, most uh, citizens in most countries certainly want to remain uh, within the European Union, and they recognize some of the very important uh, liberties that it affords them, all the more so in countries in Central Europe that certainly don't want to be cut off from the ability to move uh, uh, for work or for holidays to Western Europe, uh, certainly uh, within smaller countries that recognize um, how much of opportunities would be restricted if they were more importantly bound within the national borders. Um, but there's also a very real sense that uh, while the European idea is great and some of the achievements of the EU are real, um, they are being ruled by unaccountable bureaucrats in Brussels um, who have a say over their lives without understanding them and there's nothing really they can do about that. Um, Now, part of its story has some merit, part of that story is hugely overblown, um, uh, but that accounts for this ambivalence uh, that uh, people have something they really relate to in the European ideal but we are not exactly inspired uh, when they hear Brussels or when they hear the European Parliament. Um, and it has to be said that some of the moderate political forces, some of the established political parties in the European system, carry some of the vote for that. And Manfred Weber, uh, the Spitzenkandidat of the center-right faction of parties in the European Parliament, the EPP, uh, is a, a very powerful example of that. As uh, one of his party colleagues told me uh, privately a couple of days ago, um, he came to speak in their uh, political faction, the Bundestag, Angela Merkel's political faction, the CDU, and he was shockingly unimpressive, boring, without ideas, without passion. Uh, He is somebody who is well known to be not the leading light of his generation, let's say, um, a provincial politician um, who uh, uh, doesn't have strong ideas of his own and who most importantly has been one of the principal enablers of Viktor Orban, the prime minister of Hungary who has led his country uh, into a de facto dictatorship Um, and now is supposed to be the standard bearer of uh, uh, democratic Europe against the populist onslaught. So, Mr. Orban... Hungary became a member of the European Union in 2004. You have signed, and your predecessors to the values of the Union, and all these principles. You know them very well, and even the left or the right in this house respect them. You have violated, in fact, every one, every single of these principles now, and yet what you want to do is to remain member of the European Union. Well, I have, in fact more respect for the decency of Eurosceptics skeptics who are at least saying, well, I don't like the European Union, I don't like the values, and I go out. You, you want to continue the money of the European funds, the money of the European Union, but not the European values.
2: So can you talk a little bit more about how he's led Orban to become more more powerful?
0: Yeah, so, um, uh, you know, Victor Orban is... Uh, a, a very interesting political character, probably the most talented uh, of populist populists in Europe today, and he has a very long and complicated political career behind him. Um, in the late 1980s, he was a courageous dissident fighting the Soviet Union, um, and founded a nominally very liberal party, Fidesz. Um, now, over the course of the 90s and the 2000s, this party drifted further and further to the right, and more importantly. Um, it didn't just drift to the right politically, it started to set itself against um, the basic uh, laws and norms of liberal democracy. So it was a member of a center-right group of political parties throughout the 90s and the early 2000s when that made some amount of sense. It didn't seem particularly controversial. Um, uh, But as the party moved to the right, as Viktor Orbán started to suppress freedom of speech in his country, as he started to undermine uh, the independence of judicial institutions, as he took over the Electoral Commission, as Freedom House started for the first time in the history of any EU countries to class Hungary as only partially free rather than fully free, the EPP faced a choice about whether to continue tolerating the governing party of somebody who's establishing a dictatorship in the heart of Europe as a part of its political family, or whether to turn a blind eye and uh, Manfred Weber as the head of the EPP is the person most guilty for and most responsible for keeping Viktor Orban in that political faction time after time, giving him political cover, pretending that when Viktor Orban took three steps towards abolishing democracy and then calculatedly under pressure took half a step back, that uh, constituted uh, Orban being responsive to concerns of his European partners. It is a factless course of action, uh, which has sold out basic democratic principles. And to have that personage as the standard bearer for democratic Europe at the moment uh, 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 is uh, a huge strategic and moral mistake. Um, And it's no surprise uh, that as a result, the uh, EPP faction is likely to lose a lot of its support in the upcoming elections.
2: At the same time, many European leaders, including French President Emmanuel Macron, understand that unless the EU keeps moving forward, it will go backwards. If you were advising Macron on how to realize his vision of a stronger Europe with a common budget and other attributes of statehood, what strategy and steps would you recommend?
0: Well, I don't know whether the idea of an ever closer union, which is enshrined in the heart of the European Union, um, is the right way forward people's attitude towards what the eu should do is quite paradoxical i think um and the paradox consists in the fact that a lot of people actually think that broadly speaking the balance of powers between brussels and the member states is about right at the moment which is to say that they complain about bureaucracy and so on but that is not in most countries except for the united kingdom a really major political issue people like freedom of movement. They like, in principle, some of the elements of having a single currency. They like things like the Erasmus program, which allows a lot of Europeans to go and spend a semester or a year abroad at a university in another country. They want to keep, however, their ability to tax themselves, their ability to make uh, major financial decisions. They don't want to create a European welfare state. Uh, where there's real uh, redistribution between different European countries. So in a way, the steady state works, except that it doesn't, because uh, the nature of the euro at the moment is making it very hard for countries in southern Europe to recover from the economic crisis that they've now been suffering for over 10 years. And because the basic structural problems of the euro haven't been solved, so that the next economic crisis is likely to start the cycle of uh, uh, near bankruptcies um, uh, and existential threats to the single currency zone all over again. So I think uh, uh, Europe is now in the strange position where it would either need a big step forward towards much more fiscal integration, towards a truly European welfare state in order to make the euro work, but there's no political support for that in much of Europe, or it would need to abolish the euro, but nobody knows how to do that without economic chaos. Um, So my answer to Emmanuel Macron is that I don't know, that there's a way out of this Gordian knot. Not very helpful. That's why I'm not a political advisor.
2: Well, you just mentioned chaos, and you touched on the UK, so I'd love to talk about Brexit. In 2016, the UK opted out by the slightest of margins to leave the EU, And yet British MPs' inability to agree on any Brexit deal with the EU has forced the UK to participate in the European Parliament elections. If Nigel Farage's new Brexit party does well, one can imagine a stronger push, not least from the EU side, to get the UK out. But one can also imagine a continuing loss of momentum for Brexit, both electorally and politically, in the UK. How will the coming election affect the process?
0: I mean, uh, look, if... Nominating Manfred Weber as uh, the Spitzenkandidat for the European European Parliament elections is uh, a a phenomenal way for moderate politicians in Europe to shoot themselves in the foot. Uh, Then uh, the United Kingdom participating in the elections for the European Parliament amidst utter domestic political chaos when the country is supposed to leave the Union uh, within months is an even greater piece of lunacy. The UK was never meant to hold European parliamentary elections again. But with the six-month Brexit transition being granted, they're now inevitable. But many in Britain, including the Prime Minister herself, believe them to be a waste of time.
1: I don't believe it's right to be in a situation of holding European parliamentary elections. Three years on, from people having voted to leave the EU,
0: now an exasperated British public on both the Leave and Remain sides are looking for ways to punish the traditional parties and send a strong message. We now face an election in which the Labour Party has not made its stance on Europe clear so that it is not a home for the large number of people in the country who want to remain in Europe or at least secure a soft Brexit. The Tory party's stance is... Also reasonably unclear, which has allowed the hard Brexiteers to completely dominate the debate. So the two main political vehicles have nothing to say about the main dividing issue in the country today. So what happens? The formation of new parties, and the one that has been most successful so far is the Brexit Party, um, led by Nigel Farage, um, strongly Euroskeptic, uh, but clearly also in the far-right populist mold in other ways. And they are likely, uh, according to the latest polls at least, to gain more support than the Labour Party and the Tory party put together. The fear is not just that that'll place a bunch of deputies in the European Parliament who then leave again half a year and get a nice pension for the rest of their life, which, you know, good for them. Um, The fear is that this could lead to a much larger realignment in British politics. Uh, This is not ultimately about Brexit. In 2010, uh, uh, an opinion poll in Britain asked, uh, about the most important issues facing the country, and 0.5% of respondents mentioned Brexit. So all of this, in my mind, is just the battleground for the larger clash um, between uh, 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 far-right populists um, and the uh, more established political party parties. Uh, and the fact that the Brexit party will now dwarf the conservatives in these European Parliament elections may put them on track to either displace or intellectually capture the Tory party domestically for the next years. So I think that this is a slow-moving disaster, not just for Britain's relationship to the European Union or for its ability to trade with the continent, um, but for the nature of British politics going forward.
2: Well, since we just talked about Brexit, I think maybe we should also touch on the Euroskeptics, which you've mentioned um, quite a bit. And even if they represent a minority across EU member states, Euroskeptic parties have gained significant momentum ahead of these elections. And one of our Project Syndicate columnists, Daniel Gross, says he's not that worried. In his column this past month, he argued that the rise of Euroskeptics represent a backlash against the recent pace of European integration and not the EU itself. Is he right?
0: No, I think he's wrong. Um, uh, If Euroscepticism was an isolated phenomenon, uh, that interpretation might be tenable. But what we're seeing is that Euroscepticism is just one little wing of this wider wider, far-right populist movement. When you look at some of the populists who are now leading the polls for the European Parliament elections, um, whether it is uh, Velega in Italy, whether it is former Front National in France, uh, whether it is, according to most polls, unfortunately, the uh, uh, Law and Justice Party in Poland, uh, Euroscepticism is a small wing of what they are about. They are uh, far xenophobic parties, and more importantly in this context, they are anti-institutional parties. They claim that they and they alone stand for the people. But anybody who disagrees with them is by very nature of that fact illegitimate. And that therefore the kinds of institutions from independent courts um, to a split of sovereignty between the nation state and the European level are by nature, is, are by definition, illegitimate. But the only legitimate way of exercising power is for one person who is a representative of a people to be able to make decisions. Um, and in this respect, uh, they are sold on the independence of domestic institutions and the deep distrust of European institutions are part of the same coin. As long as these political forces are in the, are in the ascendant in Europe, they are going to pose a deep challenge uh, to the European Union. Um, Look, we've talked at the European level a lot about Brexit and the future relationship that the United Kingdom is going to have to the European Union, and it's an important topic. But the EU can absolutely exist with 27 rather than 28 member states. It can live without Britain. There is a much more existential threat to the persistence of the EU, and that is the rise of governments aiming to establish Dictatorial rule in the heart of Europe. It is the fact that Hungary is no longer a free country. It is the fact that Poland and Romania and other places seem to be following suit very quickly. And that is going to challenge the very nature of the European Union. Because it is understandable, you can at least make the case why a German citizen should share some of his or her sovereignty with citizens of France in order to accomplish common goals and so on and so forth. But how do you explain to a German or a French or an Italian or a Swedish citizen why they should pool some of their sovereignty with a dictator in Budapest or Warsaw or elsewhere in the continent? So accepting these countries, the drift of these countries towards dictatorship, um, challenges the very justification of the European Union, And it changes its nature from being a club of democratic values to being a regional trading bloc that is happy to deal with dictators as much as uh, fairly elected democratic politicians. Um, So in that sense, the signaling function of European Parliament election and the way in which it might further embolden some of those anti-democratic forces, especially in Central Europe, but also in parts of Southern Europe and parts of Northern Europe, um, uh, in my mind, is uh, most important.
2: Well, it sounds like what we were going to expect from the parliamentary elections is a lot more paralysis in in EU governance. How can the EU go about trying to overcome that?
0: Well, the first step would be for more traditional moderate parties within Europe to realize that this is not a time for business as usual. Um, you mentioned Macron earlier. Uh, He made a bunch of very ambitious proposals for the future of Europe. I agree with some of them, I disagree with others. um, But the reaction from Germany was not to agree with some or disagree with others. It was not to engage. It was basically to say things are going fine and we don't really have political energy right now. So we're not really going to try and come up with a common agenda. And this is symptomatic of a wider attitude towards more by more established parties so basically say we've been doing the same thing for 50 or 60 years it's worked very well let's just wait out as populist dries there's something in the water it'll subside somehow and things will go back to normal and we can go back to being the sort of boring responsible um uh, uh administrators of little political developments that is a sure way to ensure that the european union will eventually fall apart um And so the answer has to be to try and figure out a real set of reforms for the EU, um, build the broadest coalition possible for them, which will exclude the populists, but has to include a lot of other political forces, and actually carry those institutional renovations out. But I have to say that my hope that this might happen uh, is pretty minimal.
2: So what is the future of populism in Europe?
0: Well, it's difficult to predict, um, so it's perfectly possible that the trends over the last years will, for one reason or another, reverse or subside. For now, however, the trend is that populism is in the ascendant. It's no longer a marginal force. It is the most important political force in Europe and much of the world. Um, We have seen that it can destroy democratic institutions in much of Central Europe, Uh, We have seen the ways in which it is starting to challenge and undermine uh, core parts of the separation of powers in countries like Austria and perhaps Italy. Um, So uh, I think that this is a genuine threat, uh, not just for the European Union, uh, but for democracies uh, uh, at the national level in Europe, but also North America, also in Latin America.
2: Yeah, Yasha, we end each of our episodes asking our guests this question. What gives you hope?
0: Well, one thing that gives me hope is that citizens at the moment are very disillusioned with the actual functioning of a democratic system. And that is making them open to all kinds of authoritarian politicians who promise to solve everything for them and actually just want to amass power in their own hands. That's not very hopeful. But the hopeful element is that people haven't in principle turned on the basic ingredients of our political system. Uh, They still want to live in liberal democracies uh, in which uh, they both have individual freedom, in which they get to to decide what to say or not say, how to worship, whether to worship at all, what kind of private lives to lead. They still want to have a sense that they collectively govern themselves rather than some set of generals or priests or imams or um, monarchs or uh, uh, or even distant bureaucrats. So the rise of these scary forces in our politics, the way in which they are crushing liberty in a place like Venezuela, but also in a place in the heart of Europe like Budapest, um, I think carries with it the possibility of a counter-reaction, carries with it a possibility that people might start to recognize what danger they face, and remember how important and how fragile uh, those basic values of liberal democracy are. Thank you. Thank you so much.
2: That was Yasha Monk, an associate professor at Johns Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Studies, and author of the book The People Versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom Is in Danger and How to Save It. And that's it for this episode of Opinion Has It. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira rosley Opinion has is produced and edited by Kasia Brasalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Jonathan Stein and Rachel Donna.